Welcome everyone to Check Yourself, a collaborative project brought to you by the Community Health Education Center, hence CHECK, at Salem Health Hospital. Check Yourself is a health and wellness podcast aimed at helping you live your best life. My name is Leah Burkhart. I'm a health educator here at the CHECK and the hostess of today's conversation. In today's episode, I got a chance to sit down with Kate Sparm, a longtime practitioner and teacher of yoga, as well as Dr. Ty Schuyler, the director of our sleep clinic at, here at Salem Health Hospital. Together, we talked about the subject of mindfulness. It's a buzzword that's floating around in a number of circles. You'll hear about its importance in TED Talks, medical offices, yoga studios, even in pop culture. Suffering from burnout, engage in a mindfulness practice. Can't sleep? Mindfulness is the answer. Are you unhappy? Mindfulness will help you. You name the ailment, mindfulness will be given as a potential remedy. But what exactly is mindfulness? Does anyone really know? And what counts as a mindfulness practice? If one is sitting quietly in prayer, is that mindfulness? If I'm watching TV, I'm not technically thinking about my problems, so is that mindfulness? Or is that mindlessness? Do I have to be sitting still to be mindful? Or can I be moving while I practice? And if we remove all of the woo-woo-y language around mindfulness and just kind of stick with the scientific evidence, what, are, what does the science say about the benefits of mindfulness? And how might a beginner get started? These are some of the questions we tackle in our conversation. As always, if you find this to be a helpful resource but are looking for more, you can always visit us at www.salemhealth.org slash check, C-H-E-C. We are always happy to provide resources and go into more detail if that's helpful. With having said that, I bring you Kate Swarm and Dr. Ty Schuyler. here with Kate Swarm, a yoga instructor, and Dr. Ty Schuyler. Welcome, both of you. Thank <laughs> you. So I thought we would speak to mindfulness today, so, and since we both, we're all sort of coming from different backgrounds, thought it might be a useful thing for each of us to have our own unique perspectives on it. So uh, maybe I'll start with you, Kate. I'd love to hear, what would you say is your personal definition of mindfulness? Um... That's a great question. And I think it's a hard thing to get a clear grasp on what is mindfulness. Um, I think mindfulness, right now, we think about what Eckhart Tolle brought to Oprah Winfrey <laughs> all those years ago with his mindfulness practice that he introduced here in the West, which is um, becoming aware of the present moment and being focused here in this moment mm -hmm. rather than being um, pushed ahead with our thoughts into the future and planning and preparation and looking ahead or being dragged behind and focusing on the past and trying to unravel and weave and learn from all of our past experiences instead being here in this moment and there are guided ways to do that um, whether it's noticing uh, the senses around you or through your breath. And so that's when we say mindfulness today, 
I think that's really what we're getting at and where we're coming from. But um, to me, mindfulness is part of uh, the bigger topic of medica- meditation um, and where that comes from and where meditation stems from. But they're all very, very similar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really excited to be here today and learn a little bit more about the neurology behind it and learn about what is there a difference, what's happening in our brains mm-hmm. to make a difference. Is there a difference between when we say, mindfulness and we go through a practice where somebody's guiding us or if we're just sitting and breathing is there a difference in what's happening there or even perhaps like when we start talking about um, lucid dreaming or uh, hypnotism are these all very similar things or can they be separated out Um, Mm -hmm. because from my experience they do feel similar to me when I'm in this different Mm -hmm. state of being. Mm -hmm. It feels very, very similar to me um, to be there in that moment. So I'm excited that we all get to break it down (laughs) together and approach it from these different angles. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) And how about you, Dr. Skyler? So what is... Yeah, I mean, I've I've always approached, you know, the thought of mindfulness probably, you know, I just have my own kind of layperson, you know, sort of definition, and it may seem a little strange the way I think of it, but I've always thought of mindfulness in, in the classic approach of that it's something where we're we're mindful we're in the now mm-hmm. and and I, I and that's very important of course because there's so many things that could be going on in the very moment that we can focus on and, and fixate on but then just the same as being focused in the now I've always kind of thought of mindfulness as a twofold thing is not only what it is but what it is not mm-hmm. and so what it is not is it's because I'm in the now, I've essentially, the way our frontal lobes work, you know, anxiety and stress and things are often as a result of thinking of the future, mm-hmm. as a result of mm-hmm. what, what could be, what could happen, what if I do this, and then bringing past the, you know, experiences in and then how that could lead to the future. But, but our frontal lobes are in such a way when we're completely fixated or focused on one thing that we truly can't be focused on something else. Mm-hmm. And so mindfulness ends up being a twofold benefit in that I'm focused on myself here in this moment and what that entails, but also I'm not now brought out into the future where a lot of anxiety and fear lives. And so it actually becomes a two, it's sort of a, and you can say that probably about anything. If I eat healthy food, I'm not eating unhealthy food. But (laughs) but truly mindfulness to me is that it's this moment in, but then it's not that out. And as a result of that, that that gives almost a twofold effect for benefit. And, And then how that certainly applies not only my life, but for a lot of my patients in, in the field of, of sleep and neurology. Does that, does that make yeah. sense? Oh, yeah. it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I love the way to look at that. Well, mm-hmm. and I think, too, when people, I would say seasoned meditators talk about meditation or mindfulness, they'll often use the language you just described by mm-hmm. saying, it, it's actually, well, it's, I mean, I have to, <laughs> if you exactly. just, and half the time that's why they'll say, I can't tell you what it is. Mm-hmm. Have a seat. I'm going to guide you through a thing mm-hmm. and then I'll have you tell me what you experienced. And sure. then even when people experience it, there's this abstract nebulous language that's utilized where it's like, well, I feel like I'm present. I'm in the moment. I'm mm-hmm. this. And anyone who hasn't actually had an experience of it are all going, I don't have any idea what you just said. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think some of the simplest ways I've ever heard it. And then I, you know, that resonated for me was just it's awareness 
without judgment mm-hmm. of what's happening mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Or uh, meditation instructors I've heard say, it's like this right now. Being able to answer that question, you know, what is, you know, what is it like right now? Mm-hmm. It's like this. And then taking the label out of it. So whether that means it's a, a, you know, examples of practices of it might mean anything from like, you know, being mindful of the sounds in the room without judgment. So mm-hmm. what we'll often do is we'll hear a bird chirping and think, oh, that's so nice. I should totally spend more time in nature. Mm-hmm. And then we'll hear the car buzz by or a siren and go, I hate sirens, those stupid sirens. This is why I shouldn't live in a city. And blah, blah, blah. As opposed to being able to sit back and say, oh, that's a bird. Done. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a siren. Done. And then mm-hmm. what we, the idea is when we engage in those practices, the hope is we learn to like, integrate that into our life. When an annoying person comes into the door that we don't want to have to sit with, Oh, that's just a person. Mm-hmm. They're just having an experience. <laughs> oh, I'm uncomfortable. That's interesting. So it's yeah, it's it's being able to get move from a place of that's icky, that's terrible, that's bad to this is interesting. And so yeah, mindfulness is that it's like this right now. And I'm curious, like in terms of how it integrates into the work that you do. So you you were talking about this a little bit earlier when we were you describing what people experience toward the end of say a yoga sequence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so when you're thinking of mindfulness, how are you utilizing strategies or mindfulness techniques with the people that you serve? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So I um, I like I have found it very satisfactory in my own life to have opportunities to be content (laughs) and so I like to think that I create those spaces for people I've found massive benefit in my life and just from looking at people in the groups that I'm leading it seems to almost have a an immediate effect on them so I like to create those opportunities for them Um, and I do that through guiding the yoga classes or the meditation or at the end of a yoga class, typically, um, especially here in the West, we do a lot of physical practice, and the, those physical movements or postures are called asana. Um, most classes still, though, at the very beginning, it's going to start with a quiet moment of reflection and intention setting. Um, so that is one way. Right, so there at the very beginning of a of a practice, um, you can whatever was going through your mind, whatever things stressors there were in your life, whatever chatter, mental chatter was going on, um, whatever loops were replaying in your mind, it's a time to stop all of that and be in the moment and um, get to say or lay the pathways of what you want those loops to say. What do you want to be going through with your mind? What is helpful for you and your life? What is going to make you have a better life? And um, there are things I think all of us are pretty universal about, like what would make my life better? What's a good thing I need to hear? How can I help myself um, be better from day to day? So you set that intention at the beginning of class, whether it's peace or joy or connection or humility. All of these things can be at the very beginning of class. Quiet everything down. Find your intention um, and stay with that. And then you get to use that throughout your physical class, which is uh, 
is really cool because now you're adding real life movement. You're using your physical body to explore um, the world around you and try things and fail at things in a public setting. You're going to push yourself through all of these experiences right there on your mat and it has like real life um, metaphorical implications for you and you started with that intention so we started to say like oh look at this component of life look at this one topic mm -hmm. okay and now how is that relating to okay you tried to do that pose and you wobbled <laughs> and you were in front of everyone how did that make you feel what was uh, replaying in your mind there? How does that then relate to the intention that you started with? And then you take all of that, you wrap it up, and at the end of class, um, we always end with Shavasana, which is a Sanskrit word, um, which means corpse pose, mm -hmm. which like we can really <laughs> break down even corpse pose and why it's called corpse pose and what that moment of silence in stillness really is supposed to represent um, but at the end of class after we've moved and we've breathed and we've experienced all these things together as a group we've had triumph we've had um, experiences of, of like loss and embarrassment together and then we lay quietly with all of that mm -hmm. in our hands and our minds and in our bodies as a collective group mm. and we just stay there in that silence and for a lot of people that is when they will experience a moment of meditation that is unguided and is more what people sometimes mm. search for with they're saying silence or you shouldn't have any thoughts which I have yeah, never please. experienced what <laughs> that would be like, but it is this moment of um, like peaceful floating with nothing particular that you're thinking of. There's no like exact thought train. It's more like thoughts in the distance floating space where you just get to be very still. And most people experience that moment of Shavasana. It's very peaceful. It's one of the most contented places you get to be and be aware that you're there um, and and it's a really it can be a really healing process for a lot of people to go through that class and that experience like that um, so that's what I that's a little bit about what I bring to a yoga class um, and hopefully what people take away from it all the the stillness and reflection that they can then integrate into their daily life mm -hmm. <laughs> so so if i may ask yeah. both of you as, as a novice to meditation but that uh, and and mindfulness but one that does you know encourage this and have some patients referred out for it through sleep a lot of the patients that we make this recommendation for or those that are already interested in it already harbor some you know, maybe they're already one that has some angst or they, they're very self-critical. And so they're getting into this for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so you said you've had your experience, Kate, with people who are involved with this the first time and you're giving them this, uh, you know, some, some guidance. One of the things I get back early from a lot of, a lot of patients, uh, and myself personally as well, is I'm, my mind is really on the go or I don't feel like I'm very good at this. And already mm -hmm. they're self-critical and they're hard on themselves and they think that there's some level of 
Blaker scale of I'm a five of five good or I'm a one of bad. And most people will tear off the bat. Or they're already they were already very skeptical, reticent mm-hmm. about going into this to begin with. And so you say, sit down and try this. And they're already saying, this is, like you pointed out, like a car drove by. Well, maybe I shouldn't have done it here. This is a bad spot to do it. And they, mm-hmm. yes. and they come back saying, this didn't work for me. Or they're, they're already expressing doubts. Like, for, for both of you, um, and, and maybe you can start, like, you know, do you have, strat- or maybe not strategies, but things that you have found effective for people when they first get into this? And they're having some, maybe some early setbacks? I would say yes, and probably one of the most powerful things you can provide. This is part of why uh, class setting can be so potent. I mean, there's plenty of resources, and I'm all about having accessibility. So Headspace or Simply Habit or Calm.com or whatever you might choose. And those meditation applications can be fabulous. Mm -hmm. But the power of having it in a group with an instructor Mm -hmm. who's had some experience with it is that the instructor, so long as said instructor has some level of skill and some experience with beginner's mind, because that's what it really is about. Sure, sure. It's, you know, we, it's hard for adults to have beginner's mind. We're used to being good at a lot of stuff. Right. And so what could be beneficial is when they start saying, well, this was my experience. Like my head didn't, my, my thoughts didn't stop it. They're whirling around. I heard the siren go by and maybe this wasn't the right thing. Um, to just constantly say, congratulations, you did it exactly right. Mm-hmm. And that's what startles people. Mm-hmm. And that's what seasoned meditation instructors will always say. It's like, no, 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 you didn't do it wrong. You're doing it exactly right. The a practice of meditation isn't actually about getting your thoughts to silence. That's a side effect. Maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully. Okay. So that's sort of like, yeah, you're, you're increasing the potential for peace of mind mm-hmm. or, or silent okay. mind. And that's lovely, but that's not actually the goal of meditation. That's just a, a pleasant side effect. The goal of meditation is, you know, so much in our time, so much time in our daily lives, we assume that my thoughts are the same thing as me. Mm-hmm. So if I am, we, even the way we speak in our language, I am angry. I am sad. The language itself expresses, I am this thing. And so meditation is about just creating a little bit of space between the thoughts you're having and who you are as a human being. Mm -hmm. And in that Mm. tiny little space, so it's the difference between, God, I'm really stressed, I'm agitated, I really hate that stupid car go by. Did I remember to turn off the coffee mug this morning? I really hope I remember to turn it off because I'm already here, like I already have an electricity bill that's through the roof. Did I turn the AC off? My God, it's 100 degrees outside. Did I turn, all of that. Mm. That's natural to come in. But the hope is that you start, when soon as you watch it and you see it come on, you go, oh, look, it just happened. Mm-hmm. I just did, like, I just got, like, hijacked. That's, and it's moving from, that's terrible, to, oh, that's interesting. Huh. And this is part of why I think so many meditation techniques try and give people something to do. Mm-hmm. So it can be watching your breath. It can be um, engaging in, like, listening to the sounds mm-hmm. or trying to identify your thoughts. And if you, he, if you were to hear someone guiding up another person through meditation, they may even play with that and say, now listen to my voice. Did I just catch you in the stream of a thought? If I did, that's fine. Go back to the breath. Mm. And so it's really just trying to give something for people to focus on for an extended period of time without distraction. And then when the thoughts come online, that's actually not a bad thing. That's to be celebrated. And then to sort of point out saying, okay, you saw that. The fact that you had enough presence of mind to identify that a siren b- went by and you didn't like it means that you were al- awake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were present. Mm-hmm. And so I think for, you know, when talking to people who are new meditators, that's one of the first things that can be helpful to 
remind them of. And I will say too that a lot of seasoned meditators I know who aren't from the United States or from the West, when they hear from people in the US who are trying to start meditation and they'll see them live their lives and then try and just immediately sit down and meditate, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. they'll say, oh no, 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 no. We can do that in our country because we've got a little bit like, we're a little bit lower key. You guys are nuts. So you would (laughs) actually be better served moving your body first. So they would probably tell people like like you just described, where their mind is going around like crazy and they feel like it's, they're just marinating in their stress. It's not actually helpful. Um, A seasoned meditator might say, take five to 10 minutes and move. Mm. pace, walk, do yoga or mm-hmm. a physical yoga exercise, okay. whatever okay. and spend some time doing that first and then slowly ease into sitting down and that may actually help so those are the two okay. elements I say I would think would be most likely to come up okay. yeah I think that's all That's all great advice, um, I love all of that, the, what I would maybe add on is that there are so many different routes to get through meditation. You could meditate on any one of your senses. So, I mean, you can do a visual meditation, you can do listen to your breath, you can do a mindfulness practice where you relax from head to toe. Um, there are a lot of different ways to enter a meditative state. And so you and some of them are just going to work better for some people than others. Some people, it's just better to enter it from a different avenue. So to think that, you know, one, just one visit to an attempt at meditation is going to be the best way for you to do it. Give lots of, there's lots and lots of different tries. That's one thing about um going to like a teacher or something like that. They might be able to gauge where uh, is the best entrance point for you, whether it's music or um, even doing art or however you want to approach it. There's a lot of different practices that um, can get you into this meditative state that I think, you know, to not try to apply just one technique and then um, get frustrated by it because there, yeah, there's just so many avenues to get there that uh, keep giving it a try, mm-hmm. keep trying different things and see what works best. Um, and because I really try my hardest to meet people where they're at. Mm. <clears throat> like, there are definitely groups that I will not say meditation to. I wouldn't call it meditation because that in itself is going to produce some sort of fear anxiety response mm-hmm. um, for lots of different reasons. A lot of people come from a background where medit- the idea of meditation or what that means, the connotations of it, actually makes them extremely uncomfortable. Sure. Um, so it's already challenging for them. Uh, people have also... Um, experienced these meditative states as tied to let's say even a religious experience Mm -hmm. and so when they are then going trying meditation it feels like it's rubbing up against these experiences they've already had which sometimes can be alarming 
Um, and for some people, it doesn't it doesn't make them feel comfortable to um, be experiencing that outside of a context they already know. So sometimes that in itself can be difficult to get through that and to open yourself up to this experience. Um, and sometimes it's the group setting that you mm-hmm. you have to be somewhat disarmed to be completely relaxed in a group setting like that. And some people aren't, aren't comfortable doing that. It doesn't make mm-hmm. them... Um, it's, it just doesn't provide the best environment. So there's a whole bunch of these environmental factors and ways to um, access a state of meditation that and then to go back to what Leah was saying, absolutely <laughs> that you're not doing it wrong. It's not the it's not the um, it's not you that that's the problem. So it's mm-hmm. like there's lots of ways to access it and and it will be a journey and if you uh, start thinking about something else is completely fine. There's no wrong way to meditate. Just give yourself the options and opportunities to explore more. It's a lot like exercise. You know, like the, how many times have you heard someone come in and say, yeah, I know I should, like if you're talking to a cardiologist, it's mm-hmm. just like, if you could please exercise your body a little bit. You say, I know, doc, I know I need to go exercise, but I just hate running. I mean, and how many times would you go, but, well, but that's not the only one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you, you know, and a lot of people don't realize that gardening ex- exercise mm-hmm. or walking or swimming or mm-hmm. biking or underwater basket weaving or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that meditation techniques are the, very similar where it's like, if you, it could be the case that it, whatever one you try just isn't the right fit for you. Mm-hmm. And much like with exercise, you want to give it a little bit more of a chance because you, when you start exercising your body physically, it's going to be uncomfortable no matter which one you choose because you're out of shape. And in a similar vein, I think meditation techniques can sometimes provide that same. So you want to give it a little bit of time, but if you give it one or two weeks and it's like, this is just so not my shtick. Mm-hmm. This is not jiving with me at all. That's great. Move on, try something else. Mm-hmm. Now. I think that uh, from personal experience, the, the act of mindfulness um, in some ways is not unlike exercise in that you don't have to do very much initially to get some benefit. And I mm-hmm. think that's where people get thrown off is that they have this mm-hmm. thought that they need to have their pillow on their deck in some, you know, crisscross applesauce, as my son would say, <laughs> position in this great set of mindfulness that mm-hmm. they see on TV or on a documentary that they'll mm-hmm. never achieve. Uh-huh. And, and mindfulness can be nothing more than something just frustrated you and instead of just exploding, maybe just looking out the window and then just focusing on a leaf kind of flipping back and mm-hmm. forth and saying and just taking a couple of deep breaths and all of a sudden that, that sensation washed over you. And it can be that fast. Mm-hmm. And that's what throws people off. I, I think or they fail to recognize is what mindfulness can be. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be this 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 state of 30 plus minutes of mm-hmm. action. It can be a very rapid transition. Mm-hmm. And I thought a lot about it. And, and sometimes I wonder if it's even the action itself. I do believe the action itself, um, you know, the, the breathing and the, and the focus mm-hmm. creates physiologic changes that calm us. But I thought a lot about it it may not even be anything more sometimes even than the act of, of making the choice mm-hmm. to meditate creates mm-hmm. the change. Mm-hmm. And, and an example of that is you can be in a bad mood. You can be very upset. And you certainly don't feel like smiling. But the, the actual behavior, the physical mm-hmm. change of smiling can create 
a change in your mood and yeah. a change in your emotions. So the actual mm -hmm. physical action of me making a, or a decision to now think about mindfulness may in itself be something that creates a change separate from the, the, the actual physiologic changes that then take place. So I think it's even the action of choosing mm -hmm. that can be beneficial on top of that. So that's that beneficial effect. And so I find it so many times to be so effective at, at control, you know, not controlling emotion, but just mm -hmm. allowing us to, you know, to, again, to make recognition of what's happening right now and, and, and being, What's the kind of the word I'm thinking about? Maybe uh, giving empathy. It's a form of empathy mm -hmm. to recognize mm -hmm. what I'm feeling and then being okay with that, mm -hmm. not necessarily acting on it. And then shortly thereafter, usually feeling pretty good mm -hmm. that uh, mm -hmm. I've coped with it and, and now mm -hmm. I can move on. Mm -hmm. Or even being okay that it's not okay. Right. Exactly right. And that's that, I think, that empathy, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like, you no, know, I'm in a really crappy mood right now yeah. and I'd like it to stop. Well, okay. That's where I'm at. <laughs> Yeah. It's sort of like the you are here button on a right. shopping mall map where mm -hmm. it's like, well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, there that is. I mean, when you're, th I'd be curious to know, like with the patients that you work with and they're, they're trying to get sleep, either mm -hmm. to stay asleep or to fall asleep, or they're having challenges, any n myriad of challenges that I know we've talked about. Um, what are some of the relaxation techniques they've brought to you that they've tried that you went, oh, well, that's cool. Like maybe you didn't even know about, but they brought it's, it to you. It's generally, they, they kind of speak in kind of generic terms mm -hmm, of, uh -huh. oh, I've tried meditation. And they don't, you know, and it's mm -hmm. this thought of, I think, just quiet reflection. But, you know, it's, it's, it's patently unfair for them to say it's not effective because they're already probably very conditioned to not sleeping well and so mm -hmm. they get in this environment and then they, they immediately try to try something new mm -hmm. in this spot mm -hmm. it doesn't work right off the bat and so that just ratchets up the arousal system and so they just immediately call it a, a call it a failure yeah. and so I I haven't had well I've, I've had some of those that say oh I've tried that and and, and usually I think that's what they're primarily mm -hmm. referring to is this, this quiet state but the very nature of their insomnia in part mm -hmm. is that they're conditioned to have their mind race. They're already yeah. frustrated. Their arousal system is 10 out of 10. So it doesn't matter what kind of quiet reflection they're doing. They're not yeah. going to combat that. They're just going to sit there and fixate and, and marinate, as you said, great term, um, on those, on all the things that they're not doing, which is, I want to sleep. Exactly. And the more you want to do yeah, something like sleep, yeah. the less you're going to be able to do of it. And it just perpetuates the, the system. So, yeah. So things like cognitive behavioral therapy where... I will work with patients over a period of time to kind of give them confidence slowly to begin exploring their own negative thoughts and how those may not be entirely true mm -hmm. and give them a form of kind of self-efficacy where we make gradual improvements. And often I will refer to a psychologist to teach other strategies that I'm not as experienced or as well versed in for uh, you know, maybe biofeedback or breathing techniques of that nature. And we kind of incorporate all that with behavioral techniques as well uh, to move forward with patients. And ultimately, I, I would love it to be where it's like the classic neurologist where like diagnose and adios, you know how it is, here's the diagnosis, off yeah. I go. Insomnia is not like that. This is yeah. something that's been brewing for, it's been going on for mm -hmm. years. And so our goal isn't to, I just say, let's just get some improvement. That's what we're aiming for. Let's go from here to here. And so mm -hmm. maybe, maybe we get them down from X milligrams of a drug down to a little bit, a little bit lower. And yeah. and they're sleeping just as well or better on a lower dose. What a victory! Exactly. And they feel a little they feel good about that. And then maybe mm -hmm. they're a little more open to some of the the cognitive thoughts. And so I, in some ways, it's motivational interviewing. But I also kind of 
chip away at some of the, the yeah. their, their negative beliefs and we just slowly kind of develop a teamwork that way mm-hmm. well yeah you're helping them change their relationship with it so exactly that they, right so that they're not giving insomnia the keys to the car mm-hmm. like they're and you know there was it was explained to me especially for people who are not like numbers oriented or you know you use woo-woo language for them and they're just <laughs> looking at you like deer at headlights mixed with <laughs> are you serious right now kind of expression um sometimes a language that can be helpful is you know it, picturing a graph so on the x-axis is resistance, and on the y-axis is pain, whatever the pain might be. So the pain could be insomnia. I want to be sleeping, and I'm mm-hmm. not. Or it could be physical pain, like I'm, I'm back pain, head pain, whatever it might be. And the what a lot of people focus on is the pain itself. I want to be sleeping, I'm not sleeping. I want to be sleeping, I'm not sleeping. I want to be sleeping, it's not sleeping. I tried that stupid meditation exercise, and it didn't make me go to sleep, so therefore it was a failure. But meditation isn't actually about making the pain go away. It's about reducing the, the resistance. So if you were to look at a, this graph, mm. let's say that someone's pain is perceived to be at a 10 and their resistance is at a 10. Well, what you would do if you're using that as a visual is multiply those two numbers together, 10 times 10. That's your suffering number. Like that's the degree of suffering you're, you're experiencing. So meditation is about trying to reduce that resistance and be at peace with whatever it is that you're going mm-hmm. through at that time. So when you take the resistance down, it's taking that x y that x axis and reducing mm-hmm. it. So y- your pain may still be at a ten, like the frustration you feel with insomnia because you're still exhausted and you're still struggling to get through your day to day life. But if you if the resistance comes down to maybe say a five, well now it's five times ten instead mm-hmm. of ten times ten, and so the overall cumulative amount of suffering starts to reduce. And if you engage in that kind of practice long enough, whatever that practice might happen to be, eventually what can happen is you just talked about how their system is so hyperactive. That reduction in resistance can set the system up so that their inflammatory markers might come down a smidge. Mm. Their cytokines might not be as pronounced. And so that may help reduce the pain itself over time. And so it's not meditate makes the you know meditation makes me sleep it's meditation reduces the resistance and over enough time that may help facilitate an increased probability of sleep Hmm. and explaining that to someone who's in the middle of an insomniac insomnia you know cycle is not terribly i don't know i I don't elicit a lot of enthusiasm from that group (laughs) but when i say these things but that's it's just like you were talking about your primary effort is let's talk about small wins let's talk about changing the relationship that's what meditation Mm -hmm. techniques are really striving for it's not trying to make your life change it's trying to change how you orient yourself in relation to what happens to your in your life Mm. and then that once you get enough experiences of that in a moment of clarity can set you up so that you make increasingly more improved decisions. And so again, it's change your relationship first and then increase your capacity. Once your capacity is increased, your ability to engage in better decisions increases. Um, Once that happens, it's easier to keep doing the practice. So it's sort of, it doesn't matter which one you start with. As soon as you get more capacity, you make better choices. Those better choices lead to better capacity Mm -hmm. to keep doing the Mm -hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting how many things overlap with, you know, with, with meditation and, and medical practice and with and, and presume with you know with yoga how how things can we we talked about this in the past how things can 
you know, some things are cycles, but some things can just be per- just perpetuated and mm-hmm. how you can mm-hmm. interfere, you know, interfere in one area of something and, and start a cycle in the, in the positive direction. And, 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 it's, and that was so well articulated. Thank you. It made me really think about how they've talked about meditation and how cognitive behavioral therapy can even work in, in avenues like fatigue. And I was curious in your practices, um, have you noticed changes? And I could see how, if the answer is yes, I could already, based on your description, see how that could how that could be, especially with the inflammation, the cytokine, and positive decisions. But have you seen areas where, in your practices, each of you, where where maybe the, the, the practice of, of mindfulness and, and yoga, how, how it's changed um, the physicality of people, uh, fatigue levels. We deal with, I see chronic fatigue all the time, and it's got a differential diagnosis that can fill textbooks. Mm-hmm. And we, sometimes you just don't know. And so they have found some of these techniques are so effective. And so I'm curious, you know, for, for a listener here who might have chronic fatigue, how this may be a benefit for them. Have, have you experienced that? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, I think it, in general I've seen... Um, movement breeds movement, right? Right. Which is helpful, right? So if you're active, you'll be more active, <laughs> uh, and and that just comes with physical fitness as well, right? You have you get stronger, so you can continue to be strong. Um, but I feel even if I talk about personally in my life, the times that I have been most physically active especially with the yoga practice are the times where I have had the most energy so if I'm even practicing yoga you would think if I was practicing yoga twice a day that I'd be really tired because (laughs) I am working out a bunch but that is not the case in fact when I'm working out a lot I have the most energy um, to be able to do everything else and then I'm, I'm that's when actually my sleeping habits are always the best. I'm waking up uh, nice and early, really refreshed, ready to go, and I fall asleep just like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've definitely experienced that in my own life and with the people around me and, and the people who attend my classes as well. Uh, and I think a component of that, I do believe it is the mindfulness component of that. It's a having in a yoga practice, um, having those moments of, Uh, focused attention and meditation which almost brings me to lucid dreaming (laughs) I would love to talk about lucid dreaming and uh, in that there's parts of sleep that can make you feel more energized right if you have these types of sleep and I wonder if that's can is the same or can relate to almost mindfulness practices and if they're somehow energizing our, our brains. <laughs> well, the, the data is very clear that those who, you know, there are certain types of, you know, exercise in itself mm-hmm. significantly uh, impacts sleep in a, in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, like, you know, cross-sectional studies of people, good sleepers, poor sleepers, the, the, you'll typically find 80-plus percent of good sleepers have you know, some form of exercise. Or another way is, mm-hmm. like, of the people who exercise, most of them are good sleepers. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that has to do with there's an element of when we exercise, it truly increases what's called the homeostatic sleep drive, which is the longer we're awake, the, the more sleepy we get. But we actually can add to that by physical exercise, plus the brain will secrete a, a, a certain type of hormone to actually increase more deep sleep in the event that we exercise more. Mm-hmm. And yoga can uh, can provide that. In many cases, to your point, when people think about yoga, it's not just stretching. It's very physical, mm-hmm. but in a good way. And 
and partly I thought about this in terms of how how would yoga or why is it when we stretch in the morning it's such a potent way to wake mm, us up mm-hmm. and I thought a lot about that like with yoga itself I probably could go you know I've researched this but I've always kind of thought of as our stretch receptors um, and proprioception which is like where mm-hmm. our arms and legs are mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they're actually controlled by the biggest nerve fibers in the spinal mm. cord they run right up the, 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 the back of the spinal cord and then that goes in and then it shoots into the thalamus and the thalamus is called the executive secretary which means it relay it's it decides what gets to go to the cortex in most circumstances mm-hmm. and so when you're engaged in like yoga or stretching and things you're just bombarding the thalamus with a lot of important mm-hmm. sensory info then it shoots up to the to the cortex and in doing so i do think that there's an element that there's that added deep sleep as a result of mm-hmm. that plus tack on the fact that if you're engaged in yoga you're stretching more you're more physically active you're less inclined to having the aches and pains that a lot of us mm-hmm. might suffer from when we go to bed we, we fail to realize how much age-related or musculoskeletal type just pain itself uh, can make it hard to sleep because if we're getting pain messages being s- shot up to the thalamus they're mm-hmm. also pain is a threat threat gets sent to the cortex sometimes you get you're going to get more awakenings um, and so to your point about about dreaming and sleep stages and things the more restful sleep that we can get is that deep sleep during the first couple of hours and we can add to that by by exercising and maintaining uh, and and, uh, and actually in some cases we can kind of change REM sleep when we talk about that but but mostly exercise is one of the most effective ways to, to add to deep sleep. And Tai Chi, yoga, meditation, uh, um, acupuncture are mm-hmm. all ways that have been shown to be effective at helping people sleep and, and with insomnia. Now, in terms of the dreaming itself, that can be kind of a challenge question on lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about like when people get into really heavy, deep meditative states, mm-hmm. the brain waves of the EEG will actually not will look not unlike sleep waves. Things really mm-hmm. tend to slow down. So normally, when we're awake, we got what's called we have what are called alpha waves, um, mm-hmm. and so uh, if we're sitting there quietly resting our awake, we'll have alpha waves. But otherwise, if we're just like sitting here talking, it's just kind of a flat line, just little squiggly lines. Uh-huh. But when we're in a meditative state, the brain waves start to kind of coalesce and they slow down and we get these nice undulating yeah. waves and it looks very much like what, what sleep can look like. And so there is this element now, is that sleep? No, mm-hmm. but it is an, uh, it's certainly a characteristic change in our brainwave pattern. And given how many benefits that people have reported that's been shown it, I think it has to be something that's certainly, you know, beneficial mm-hmm. for us to achieve that state. Um, and so, you know, looking at it from a sleep perspective, there are a variety of ways why yoga, why meditation could be certainly advantageous and, and, and help us. Oh, yeah. And I would say, too, that in terms of, you know, like with lucid dreaming, the only studies I've seen is, uh, I mean, a lot of it is subjective, so it's qualitative mm-hmm. analysis mm-hmm. as opposed to quantitative. Uh, what they'll say, though, there is a correlation between the amount of mindfulness techniques mm-hmm. and the duration that people engage in and what they'll report in terms of lucid dreaming that they may have, which kind of makes sense because if you're spending a good chunk of your waking life uh, calling into question your assumptions, being really mindful, being really present, mm-hmm. you're, there's that increased capacity coming back online. You're less, you know, it's the difference of when you're driving to work and you can't even remember how you got there. You drove safely and it was fine, but basically mm-hmm. your brain just tuned out for that duration versus if you consciously make an effort to make it a mindful experience of mm-hmm. I'm aware of the car in front of me. I'm looking at the surroundings around mm-hmm. me. And if you're perpetually making that kind of decision, that conscious call, 
all through your waking day, it makes sense that in your dream state, you would probably, and this is just what people speculate, mm-hmm. these are just hypotheses, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where they say it makes sense that in your dream state that you might be more inclined to, to, to wake up, so to speak, mm-hmm. and kind of go, huh, I'm looking around me and this doesn't make a lot of sense. I wonder if I'm dreaming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you're exercising that muscle to such an extent that it would make sense it would manifest yeah, in a yeah. dream state. Interesting way to look it, at it. Yeah, and I wouldn't be stunned if, if it did show that benefit because mm-hmm. there are techniques that can be performed with those that struggle with PTSD and nightmares where they can do a form of, of, of dream rehearsal therapy to try to change the outcomes of those dreams. But also it's been shown in patients who are uh, can, you know, non-depressed um, versus those who are just thought to be you know, in, in a healthy state of mind without depression, the, the dream content tends to be more negative, certainly, uh, when there's depression on board, but the other aspect is their inability to awaken during maybe the climax or when a, when, mm-hmm. a, when a dream culminates or crescendos into a terrible event. A healthy person might awaken from that and be done with it, whereas a person with, with a significant degree of depression might just continue to roll mm-hmm. on through that negative dream. And so I could see how there might be that capability with a, a level of mindfulness where, you know, there may be some elements mm-hmm. that it could be, provide a protective effect. I'd have to look more into that, but mm-hmm. I could see, you know, for those that have had lucid dreams where they feel, or maybe they're not as feeling as negative, I could see how that would tie in together. Absolutely. Yeah. And to speak too to your point about fatigue, when you, because mm. you had asked too, could mindfulness yeah. and mm-hmm. all of that help someone with that experience of just painful fatigue? Uh, I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, there's even, I wish I could cite the study, but they, they, and I'm reluctant to say this to a pet, especially insomniacs, because a lot of times they'll say, great, I'm just going to always be meditating. So uh, there's some research that indicates that 20 minutes of deep meditation can compensate for as much as two hours of sleep loss in that, mm-hmm. that night. But, you know, and I, so like CEOs everywhere are like, great, that means I don't have to sleep that much. <laughs> yeah, I'll just yeah, yeah. always be, you know, so that's what I mean there. It's like, I'll just meditate for two hours and then two, four, six, eight, I'm good. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> But it's more about uh, compensating for deficits. So you can't compensate for debt. Um, But it can be certainly very helpful. And part of what's happening there is, you know, the issue with fatigue is twofold. There's the, uh, what Buddhists would call, there's first dart, second dart. So there's the first dart, which is I'm having an experience that is uncomfortable. And the second dart is the judgments we place on top of Mm -hmm. that experience that we're having. So I, I, the example I like to use a lot is like you have, uh, say, let's say you're a parent of small children and you clean the house before you left work and I hear you are arriving at home and you get home and the house is absolutely thrashed. Mm-hmm. So there's the first experience of I like a clean house and it's not clean and that makes me uncomfortable. And then you might have a situation where it's like, what's wrong with me that I can't just go with the flow? What kind of mother am I that when Mm -hmm. I walk into the door, I'm just so insistent that these kids, you know, always be tidy and clean. And so now you've got this aggravated or, you know, you've got suffering on top of discomfort. Mm -hmm. And in the same way with fatigue, especially in the West, because we are so we celebrate productivity and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're living in a world where everyone is celebrating productivity and you're exhausted, Mm-hmm. You've got, I'm physically exhausted, and that feels uncomfortable. I mean, we all know what it feels like when your eyes are dry and itchy and heavy and your body feels like it's heavy and weighted down. And that's not an, a pleasurable experience. But then we add on top of that, oh, my God, I'm really exhausted. And what I, I have so many things that I need to be getting done. I have so many things I wish I could be doing. And so now there's suffering on top of discomfort. 
And so what meditation can help do is at least take that layer off. And what that also means is that the fatigue is going to come down because you don't have the added weight. It's almost like you've taken a few bricks out of the backpack. Gotcha. And it's not completely empty, but it's not as heavy. And so it can feel like you're a little bit lighter going, oh, oh, I'm tired. It's actually okay that I'm tired. I can maybe recruit support for this. Mm-hmm. Like I've got 15 things that needs to get done. I could <gasps> gasp, ask for help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I could maybe just ex- you know understand that this thing that I have to get done is going to be there for me tomorrow morning. And it's that ability to kind of ease into what is that uh, can be revolutionary for people. It's just getting there that can be rough. Yeah, uh, there's. I'm. You, I'm sure you guys have maybe heard this before, but it's like a really common saying is that you should meditate for five minutes a day, unless you're too busy, and then you should do fifteen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's a fun little way to look at it too. <laughs> and that's what is so obnoxious about mm-hmm. these kinds of techniques, whether it's exercise <laughs> or meditation mm-hmm. or whatever. It's like. Um, the more we need it, the less inclined we are to mm-hmm. use it. Mm-hmm. So the more stressed we are, the more we should lean on these self-care protocols. But the le- less inclined we are to do so, because what we'll end up doing the more tired we are is leaning on our conditioned behaviors. And the problem is it's our conditioned behaviors that got us into the mess in the first mm-hmm. place, much like with insomnia. Part of the problem is you've awakened every day having coffee and then you go to sleep every night to having wine what we know is alcohol thoroughly disrupts your your ability to get good quality sleep so the quality of sleep that you're getting night by night is miserable so what do you need the following morning more coffee and the more coffee that you start to amass over the end so on and so forth Mm -hmm. and so when we need to cut out the caffeine and alcohol the most we have the least capacity to do that because Mm -hmm. i'm so tired i'm and the more tired i am the more I'm going to lean on my habits to get me through the day. And so it's almost like it, what a lot of these really sort of profound meditation instructors will say is like, you just got to start. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but how will I know it will work for me? You don't. <laughs> you just have to trust. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you. And that's the same physical trainer, same thing. You know, how do I know exercise is going to do anything for me? You don't. Yeah. Do you think there's an aspect that be, maybe in part because, you know, the, the, meditation and mindfulness sometimes it can be challenging to define and and maybe therefore there are a lot of different ways that people talk about it and ways in ways to do it that just because of the lack of of clarity maybe someone interested in starting may already be intimidated because they're not quite sure where to start Mm -hmm. and it it kind of goes back to the the concept of the more choices that you have the more anxiety Mm -hmm. it creates and the Mm -hmm. less inclined and slower it is for you to make a decision and so if i know nothing about this you know, I'm not intimidated by the uh, the concept of doing it, but I just don't, I just don't know where to start mm-hmm. because I've read about, you know, I need to do this or I need to do that. Should I exercise with it? What do you say to someone as a as someone that's interested now in exploring this, but they just don't know really know where to start because there seem to be a lot of options. Um, you mentioned some things work for some, maybe not for others. Mm-hmm. How do I know maybe where to begin? What is an example of a time that you can recall in recent history? So the last couple of weeks where you were engaged in something that was enjoyable enough that you lost track of time? Uh, Last night, I was uh, really engaged with a a friend of mine's brother, 
and we were just going back and forth with our with the fantasy. We're way, way, way in advance, mm-hmm. but we were already doing fantasy football trades. <laughs> yeah. And and I think for me, negotiating the trades is probably even more fun than playing the game. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just send a text and maybe this, maybe that. What do you think about this guy? He's like, hold on, I'm golfing. I'll get back to you. And then he'd send me a trade offer. It was, I, it's just fun. I, yeah. I've always enjoyed fantasy football. It's a silly game. Mm-hmm. Um, it chews up my time, but I love it. And it was fun. And like, of course, I, I just lost track of time. And it's just this active, are we going to get a good trade out of this? So that would be my moment. Last night, it was really fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> what is it about that moment that was so fun? Like when you're saying it's fun, like the, the game itself and the negotiation, what is it about the negotiating and the actual engaging in the, the game that is so appealing? I just like the prospects that... You know, I think that I can, you know, I, I, I like the idea that maybe I can get a better deal, you know, from him, but ultimately that, you know, maybe I can win another championship. So it's this this thought of there's a competitive nature to it that I enjoy. Um, but I think I just like this this concept that I'm in the act of now trying to make my, my fantasy team better. Mm-hmm. And this is how I have to, this is how I can do it now without even dealing with the draft. I can just see if I can negotiate a deal. Nice. And so I want my team to be better. And so I, just, it's fun. And he was having a good time doing it too. <laughs> okay. So my follow-up question to that is now on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. When is the last time you can recall something that was negative? You don't have to say what the negative sure, thing was. Sure, But something happened that was unpleasant. And what helped you move through that experience like what is, what is your go-to thing that makes things that are bad suck less today mm-hmm. I had a couple of patients um, and I looked like one of them was in a certain time slot that may have been misscheduled probably needed more time mm-hmm. and in the past I probably would have gotten not worked up or yell or anything like that nothing like that but it it's frustrating because you know you have to have a designated amount of time to do your job properly so I had only what I thought was a certain amount of time for this patient then he was already 12 plus minutes late checking in so I thought I'm not even sure if I'm gonna see this person I'm just gonna go to the next one which could take a long time as well and I just decided just to go with them see the next patient saw him and then I was like well let's just see if he's still maybe if he's still there and it turned out and I was kind of thinking to myself maybe it won't actually end up being as bad in my mind as I thought it would be you know maybe he won't need that much time he'll be slotted correctly and if he's still there, I'd be happy to see him because he still wasn't in when I went to the next patient. And sure enough, he was there and, and was able to link up and the visit actually went very smoothly. Mm-hmm. So instead of just kind of, you know, exploding or getting upset or being really frustrated, um, just assuming positive intent that things probably aren't as bad in, you know, in my mind as I could make them to be, mm-hmm. they certainly weren't. And I was able to, uh, to, to modify the approach on the day and then flip right back and be able to see him and and all was well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the aspect was the, the assuming positive intent, knowing in my mind with experience now, things generally don't, they're not as, uh, we're not going to, shouldn't catastrophize. Mostly <laughs> things don't end up at the very worst. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was just a, a, a quick modification of it. It was frustrating early on, but with the recognition that, hey, this isn't the first time this has happened. Mm-hmm. Usually this works out, try this and then go back and, and it worked out fine. Uh-huh. Well, in both cases, what's interesting is that they're both very active things that you did. Now, the not exploding, of course, is something more about what you were doing internally. Right. But you didn't right. just freeze. Your go-to was, okay, I've got a little bit of space. He's not here. I'm just going to run with it and have him come in. Mm-hmm. So the combination of the thing that was the most enjoyable to you and that you lost track of time because it was just you were so immersed in sure, it. Sure, Along with the thing that helped you kind of ease into what would have been an uncomfortable experience and became a better one. Um, so that tells me that something about your temperament. 
Mm. Our temperament is probably one that's just better suited for active and engaging things. So I would probably not say to you, um, <laughs> try and do uh, Vipassana meditation where you just sit still and mm -hmm. see what comes up. I would probably be more likely to say to you, okay, what is an active thing that mm -hmm. is repetitive, that's kind of consistent? So people like you probably do better with things like, uh, at the very least, having a mantra, something to kind mm -hmm. of be saying over and over, or an active meditation. So being mindful while walking. Sure. Or like being mindful while washing the dishes. So something that's more immersive. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, for someone who feels intimidated, sure. the first thing I do for those folks is I start asking questions. Okay. And I say, okay, tell me what you already know works in your life. Yeah. Because that's where you start. You okay. look at something okay. that you already know you enjoy and that doesn't feel like it's an intimidating experience. Okay. And then see if you can fully immerse into it and do that thing mindfully. Don't do that thing and then also text your friend. <laughs> like, don't do that thing while watching a TV show. Sure. Do only that thing. Yeah. And so it can be cooking. It can be walking. It could be doing the dishes. It could be, you know, playing a game. But it's like try your best just focusing on that thing alone. Okay. And see what comes up. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. And would you... Uh, yeah, I mean, for I, being a yoga teacher, love yoga. <laughs> it's been around for thousands and thousands of years, so we have a lot of really good practice out there. We have a lot of tried and true techniques mm -hmm. for mindfulness and for wellness of mind, body, and soul. Yoga means... Uh, translates loosely to union and the union we're looking for is one internally of yourself that union of your mind your body and soul in a singular moment but the bigger union of is you within the universe and so it's this culmination of everything um, at all times, always in one moment, and it's a really big <laughs> meta thing. Um, but there's this really helpful practice that these asanas or postures um, literally have been used for thousands of years and been shown benefits for thousands mm -hmm. of years. So I, um, having now te been teaching classes for many, many years, I can, there are things I know that I can walk up to a group of most people and if I have them do the movement with me, it will produce a change in their um, way of being if they were to just do it. So there's certain things that are really almost universally helpful for people. And so uh, in, in most yoga classes, if you combine breath and movement, and I find that that practice is typically called vinyasa practice. Vinyasa is really helpful for most people. Okay. And so even in my chair yoga classes, so um, for people who don't have the best time getting up and down from the ground or have limited mobility, they can do this set of movement with me. And um, for most people, they find really helpful effects nearly immediately just a couple rounds of inhaling arms to the sky and exhaling to fold forward inhaling arms to the sky exhaling folding forward if you do that like five times you're like wow okay, i feel good like all right i can take on the rest of the world now like i'm feeling much more calm and uh and everything feels okay now and that's really uh 
what I hope I give people is like this sense of like, it's all going to be okay. Well, and what's great about what you're doing for them is you're, it's, I think, like, positive psychology experts will say you can't focus on happiness. It's a little bit like looking yes. straight at the sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to look at kind of to the side. Mm-hmm. And when you're t- guiding people through what you're guiding them through, part of why I imagine it has been so effective for thousands of years is you're not saying to them, and now we are going to meditate. Yes, yes. All you're saying to them is, okay, can you be mindful enough where when you're breathing in, you're lifting your arms up, and when you're breathing out, you're letting your arms fall. Mm-hmm. And the combination of that, it's really hard to be texting your friend while also yes. you can't. doing like, yes. you can't do all of those things at the same time. And so you're kind of coming at it from the side. Absolutely. Absolutely. It really keeps you in the moment. If I sometimes during a practice, I'll have people just focus on all 10 fingers and all 10 toes the whole time. Mm-hmm. And there's no way you can do <laughs> anything else. You can't feel all your 10 fingers gliding through the air while all 10 toes are down on the ground and possibly be thinking about anything else. So if it's just fingers and toes, fingers and toes, fingers and toes while you're breathing in, reaching your arms up and folding forward, um, there you are in that moment without anything else. There's no stressors. There's nothing else. Any of these things in your life that are weighing you down, anything you're trying to plan or prepare for or worried about, that is all gone. All you're there with is your fingers and your toes. (laughs) And so it's nice to get a little break for people sometimes like that. Yeah. And again, you don't have to actually tell them that's what they're doing. That's what's so great. Exactly. You're tricking them, but you're not tricking them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like one of those things where and that's one thing that yoga will continue to say, like in Krishnamacharya's Yoga Sutras, mm-hmm. it will, a very first sutra is, and now the practice of yoga, or some, in some translations, it's, and now the experience of yoga. Mm-hmm. They don't say, and now we begin the history of yoga, or the instruction, or the philosophy. Mm-hmm. That's not where they go from, because mm-hmm. there's this constant reiteration of, you have to experience this thing. You mm-hmm. can't learn it through a textbook. Mm-hmm. You Here, get on the mat. Like, here, let me show you. Yeah, like, lift your arms with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are you feeling? <laughs> mm-hmm. Put your arms back down. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of why these ancient modalities can be so helpful, because mm-hmm. they already figured it out really quickly that, oh, I can't tell you to meditate. I just have to have you do this thing. Sure. And mm-hmm. then by doing it, I increase the likelihood that you might end up in a meditative state. And maybe you won't, and that's fine too. But at least you showed up today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, you came to the mat. Yeah, and so some people aren't, again, comfortable with the idea of yoga. Right. Or um, yoga is a practice of Hinduism. So that, for some people, creates an uncomfortability there. But if we separate it out and I take any group of people and I have you inhale and lift your arms to the sky, exhale, forward fold. Inhale, arms to the sky, exhale, forward fold. That alone, like you don't have to associate it with anything else. It's a it's a great practice. And those things that mm-hmm. have been done for thousands of years, there's, li- there's a lot of nuggets of wisdom in there. <laughs> there's some really good, helpful tools for a really broad range of pe- people to get those benefits that we're looking for of like mindfulness yes Um, meditation yes but also those physical movements that go hand in hand with the mindfulness or meditation practice 
some some schools of thought is some you can be argued and it is argued mm-hmm. that uh, yoga the practice of yoga was simply started so you can be more comfortable in a place of meditation yes mm. that it was like all these uh, yogis were trying to meditate but they could only sit there for so long before they're like well my legs are going numb and I'm really uncomfortable and that's breaking my place of uh, meditation so I need to get up I need to stretch a little bit what's a really what's a way to stretch okay well when I stretch this way it's really comfortable it feels like it's doing the right thing and when I stretch this way it feels like it's doing the right thing when I stretch this way, it feels harmful, and it's not doing the right thing. And so they developed this physical practice so they can go back to their quiet place of contemplation. Mm-hmm. It's one idea of how the physical asana practice came about. Well, this is awesome. I, I'm curious, so like, I, I, you know, if we were all to just kind of talk about resources, so let's say someone who is listening to this is like, man... It was really lovely to hear, you know, Dr. Schuyler's, you know, d- discussion about, you know, how the brain works and how to make yourself sleepy. Or I'd love to go take one of your classes. You know, Kate, where do you teach? Um, <laughs> so where can people find you both if they were looking for your resources? Yeah, well, I actually teach here at the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> I teach uh, Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons, mm-hmm. and I teach a yoga basics class and um, and a chair yoga class. So yoga basics is a all levels class for anyone who can comfortably get up and down from the ground. If you have difficulty getting up and down from the ground or limited mobility, um, the chair yoga is another great option. Yeah, and I have some classes listed online as well, and um, I teach here and there sometimes. <laughs> so do, do patients typically then, would they go online or would there be other avenues to, to search out? these these classes for you i mean because I'm, yeah. I'm very i mean yeah very interesting but i think i got scolded years ago yes. when i did a radio uh, spot for for sleep medicine yeah. and the joke was i didn't provide the phone number or where i worked at the end i mean i think i mentioned i worked at salem health yeah, yeah. but and like all of my colleagues were like give the phone number i was like oh just talk to your doctor go see any sleep doctor you know <laughs> yeah. i was real nonchalant so i want to make sure today for anyone listening because mm-hmm. certainly i'm so like i should meditate more i should do more yoga for that person sitting there like me, they, they're going to want to know. But but what steps? How do I yeah. how do I get to see you, Kate? What do yeah. I do? <laughs> so you can you can sign up for classes online at Salem Health, and you want to go to the Community Health Education um, page, and then from there you can go and look at the classes offered, and you can sign up to take a class in person if you're here in Salem. Mm-hmm. If you're not in Salem. There's this thing called the internet. <laughs> and it has a ton of yoga classes on there. Very cool. You can... YouTube honestly has thousands mm. of yoga classes, which is a good thing and a bad thing. One, it will be hard for you to find something you can really rely on mm. um, because there's so much out there. But if you go to YouTube, you can choose... If you want a gentle class, literally type in gentle yoga class and you'll have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of options to choose from. There's plenty of chair yoga on as well. The videos with the most views typically have the most views because they're really good. Um, I would say spend some time practicing with different teachers because you might just uh, suit 
yourself better with one than another. Um, and check it out. There's endless resources online if you can't come see me in person. And um, just to be clear, the website is www.salemhealth.org slash C-H-E-C, check. So not check as in I'm writing a check, yes. but C-H-E-C, Community <laughs> Health Education Center. And that's where all of our classes are that you would be, and yet Kate included. Yes. <laughs> and how about you, Dr. Schuyler, if they wanted to connect with you? Yeah, I'm the, I'm the medical director at the Salem Health Sleep Center, which is one of, if not the oldest, sleep center in the in the state of Oregon. We have a wonderful team. I work with, with Dr. Noda and... and and so we sat and we have a three-person team. We're going to be adding another provider soon. Um, but we have a, a full-functioning sleep center that sees both children and adults. So uh, there is no screening process in terms of sleep problems. We don't cherry-pick. Um, if you have a sleeping problem, um, just as much probably as a, as a doctor referring the patient, I have patients now that just tell their doctors, I would like to see a sleep provider. And so we it would require a referral from a primary doctor or another doctor. It doesn't have to be primary doctor, just your doctor. Um, but they would place a referral over to our sleep center. We'd be happy to see them. We see uh, the ages five and up. And uh, we've done, I've been the director now for, for 10 years. It's just a wonderful staff. Um, and we're happy to see people. And we sometimes actually see people from these educational sessions. They say, oh, I heard about this. And then they, they cool. want to come on. And so it works really well. That's fabulous. And, and I will say, too, that um, for those who are interested in things like mindfulness practices, um, there are up-and-coming classes that we'll be offering every month that are specifically aimed at helping people with a mindfulness-based activity. And then more long-term, say, probably at the start of 2022, we'll be launching a mindfulness-based stress reduction series that we'll offer repeatedly throughout the year. So there's that, too. So, yeah, stay t- more to come on that. And those would be... As a patient, uh, self-initiated through the website as well. Then exactly so. Okay. So if you were a community member or a patient, um, I, with regard to you know, if you're within the hospital, there's you can do internal referrals. Okay. Uh, but you can also, if you want to access any of those programs that we have, you would go to www.salemhealth.org/check. Okay. And then from that course catalog, you would find uh, the mindfulness class that we'll be offering, and then the MBSR program later on. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Very yeah. cool. Cool oh. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both so much. I really appreciate you both coming down. I know it's hard to coordinate with so much going on. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. This was great. I could talk about this stuff all day. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Thank you so much. It was great. You're welcome.